Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the Gospel of Mark. You may be seated. We begin with the word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your prophets and through your word that we find in the scriptures. We pray this day, Lord, that you would teach us to hear those scriptures faithfully, Lord, that when our lives are not in line with your word, that we would repent and hear the good news. We pray this day, Lord, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit so we would hear your word in faith. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys remember the old Sunday school tool that we used to use? It was called the felt board. Does anybody remember the felt board? It was a board with felt on it, very creative title. Uh, and the felt board you had on there, uh, these, these little characters that were also made of felt, and you could stick them up on the board, and it was a great way to tell kids the stories that we find in the scriptures. Right, so it would be very helpful, like if you had Noah's Ark, you could put a little boat on there, and then the little animals, and you'd walk them up into the boat, and it was very nice. Or if you had Jonah, right, you'd have Jonah on there, and then a whale, and then you put the whale on top of Jonah, because Jonah was in the whale, get it, it's great. Uh, and then also, you could have Jesus walking on the water, or feeding the thousands, though you wouldn't have thousands of people on there, you would still have Jesus feeding a lot of little felt people. It was a really nice thing. But as I was preparing the message for this Sunday, I realized... I don't recall in Sunday school ever having a felt board lesson on the beheading of John the Baptist. <laughs> That's strange. This is not really one of those holly, happy, feeling texts that we have here in the Bible. This is a tough text today. It's one of those where, as the pastor, you finish reading it and you're like, this is the gospel of our Lord. And you guys are like, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. That's great news. They're the beheading of John the Baptist. It's a tough one. And yet, I'm becoming more convinced that this passage is crucial for us if we want to understand properly the reign of Christ in this world. If we want to understand how the reign of Christ works, I think we have to read this passage and understand how Christ's kingdom is so much different than the powers and the principalities of this world. I think we understand Jesus better when we contrast him with Herod. Now, in order to understand why the Holy Spirit has included this account in the Scriptures, I think it's important for us to go back to last week's message and to think a little bit about what Jesus is doing at this time. Jesus has been preaching his word, and he's not really being accepted everywhere he goes. And then he sends out his apostles to go preach the good news to call people to repent, uh, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. But as he sends them, Jesus tells them this. When you go into towns, you're not always going to be welcomed there. There's going to be places that will reject you and you will have to wipe the dust off of your feet. Now, why in the world would anybody in this world reject this incredible message of life and salvation and the coming of the kingdom of God? Well, it's because the powers and the principalities of this world work in a way that is diametrically opposed to the working of Jesus Christ. There are things in work, at work in this world that reject and oppose Jesus. And so today what we want to do is we want to compare the powers of this world with the power of Christ. The powers and principalities of this world, how they work, and contrast them with Jesus. So the question we're asking today is, what is the difference between Herod and Jesus? 
Now, I want to make a little caveat before we move forward here. There are some Christian traditions that will see a passage like the one we're looking at today, and they will say that what these passages are showing us is that all the governmental powers of this world are inherently evil, and Christians, therefore, should have nothing to do with them except to stand against them and oppose them. Now, the reality is there are times in this history of this world where it's important for the church uh, to stand up against what the government is doing. But what we have to understand is this, is that according to the scriptures, God himself has established the government to keep order in this society that is so overrun with sin. In this way, then, we would say the government it can be both a blessing and a gift. And this passage today is not about how Christians should view the government. Rather, I think, it's much deeper and more profound than that. What this passage is showing us today is that there are powers and principalities, as Ephesians calls them, at work in this world that oppose the work of Christ. And that the things in this world that the world deems so desirous and things we should all strive for, things like power and glory, fame and wealth, can become idolatrous gods. And when we're pursuing those things against Christ, we become dangerous to others. This sort of sinful, worldly mentality is personified in the person of Herod. Herod, as we see today, is going to be driven by these idols. He is driven by these gods of power and fame and glory. These are the gods that drive him. Yet Jesus, who actually is God, is driven by something else. He's driven by his love for you. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to compare and contrast Jesus and Herod, the reign of God versus the powers of this world. So let's get into it right now. The first comparison we want to make is this. The difference between Herod and Jesus. As we've kind of already alluded to, Herod is the sort of guy who desires power, he fears losing it, and he's going to get rid of anybody who stands in the way of him keeping it. He loves power, he fears losing it, he's going to remove anybody who prevents him from having it. Jesus, on the other hand, sets his power and glory aside so that he could offer his life up as a sacrifice for sinners. Let's start with Herod. Look how Herod is operating today. In this passage, we see him, and he's having a birthday party. For who? For himself. He's glorifying himself, and he's inviting all the wealthy and rich and important people in the society to come and celebrate him. He's a very humble guy. And so he has all these people there, and we'll talk about that more in a second. But while they're having this party, uh, his niece, or is it his stepdaughter, or, boy, this thing is twisted. I mean, this is a really twisted story. Uh, somebody who's related to him comes in, and she dances for all the people there. And all the men are, uh, shall we say, incredibly pleased by her dancing. And Herod is so thrilled by this that he begins to make promises to her. He begins to want to reward her, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you up to half of my kingdom because that was such a great dance. And he makes vows, and he swears that he's going to do it. And so this girl runs off to her mother, that is Herodias, which is just a beautiful name. And she goes and she visits Herodias and she says, what should I ask for? And she says, get the head of John the Baptist. Now see, John had been preaching against Herodias. Herodias uh, was also Herod's brother's wife and then had also married Herod, which made Thanksgiving very awkward in that house. Uh, and so there, John is preaching against this. He's saying this is against the word of God. You cannot live this way. And so she has him thrown in prison. She says, I want him dead. 
So go get his head. So she, the girl, runs back to Herod and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Jeez, that's a sweet little girl, isn't it? Isn't this a nice story? And so she asked for the head on a platter, and now Herod is torn. Because Herod, he listens to John. He's afraid of him. He recognizes that this is a guy who's on the side of the prophets. This is a guy who speaks the word of God, and he hears him gladly, though he's perplexed by him. But now he's made vows. He has sworn up and down that he will give this girl up to half of his kingdom, and it would make him look very foolish and very weak if he went back on his vow. It would make him look very bad in front of all these very important people. Uh, if you were to say, you know what, half of my kingdom, but not that guy, not that obnoxious prophet, you can't have his head. Herod knows the right thing to do in this situation, but instead, he does the thing that's going to save face. In order to save face, maintain his reputation, and avoid any sign of weakness, he acts out of fear and pride. And he kills John the Baptist. And he asks him, because if he lets John live, if he lets that word continue to be preached, it's bad for his kingdom. It's bad for his power. It's bad for the glory and the fame that he desires. John's bad for his idols. So he kills him. He and his wife, or is it his sister-in-law, or both, and his daughter and niece, they won't submit to the word of God. See, that's the problem with the powers in this world. They will always seek to silence the word of God when the word of God gets in the way of what they want to accomplish. See, the word of God, uh, especially we say the law, is a word that attacks. It's a word that attacks us in our sinfulness. And the aim of this is, is to bring us to a point where we need to repent and receive Jesus, and we recognize it. The law kills us in our sin, we say, so Christ can come along and raise us to a new life of forgiveness and mercy and grace. The law kills and the gospel gives life. But very often the things that the law goes after are those idols that we love, those things we cling to, those things that we desire, even though they are bad for us and against God's will. So the law comes in and accuses. And Herod, instead of repenting, fights back. He silences the word. He attacks it. It's a threat to his lifestyle. John is a threat to his kingdom. So Herod removes that which threatens his power. Herod loves his power. He fears losing. And he's going to get rid of anything that tries to take it from But notice then, in the opposition to this, how different Jesus is. Jesus enters into a world not full of people who are all thrilled with him, not, for a people, not to a people who sort of can uh, bolster his ego and further his causes. No, Jesus enters into a world full of sinners. Sinners who by nature and choice live their lives trying to kick him off the throne. Sinners who seek to be their own gods. See, this is what we have to understand about just how bad our sin is. Our sins are not mistakes. You don't just kind of accidentally slip and fall into sin. Oops, I fell into sin. No. Sin is rebellion. It's insurrection. Sin is saying, I know better than God how I should run my life. I know better than God how things work in this world, so I'm going to do things my way and not God's way, and if he gets in the way, I want to get rid of him. Our sins are acts of insurrection against Christ Jesus, and he knows it. And yet, Christ's love is greater than our rebellion. Listen to what Paul writes 
in, in the book of Romans. While we were yet sinners, not while we were figuring it out, not while we were trying to correct things and Jesus kind of came along to help us out. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He left the power and glory of heaven. He left the company of the angels and the archangels to put on our flesh. And he suffered and he died so that sinners like you and I, rebels like you and I, would be reconciled to God. And he did this for you. Herod does whatever it takes to remain in power. He serves himself. Jesus sets his power aside to save you, to save sinners. Herod's concerned with himself. Jesus is concerned with us. And this is exemplified very well in who they eat with. Here's the second thing I want you to notice today. Look who they spend their time with and how they spend their time with them. Herod throws a birthday party for himself, and who does he invite? Here's what it says. Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. In other words, he invited the who's who to dinner. People who would make him look good, who would bolster his reputation. He had the powerful, the wealthy, and the influential. All the beautiful people are there eating with Herod. All the, as we might say in our day, all those whose connections uh, would help advance his career. By showing his power to them, and by perhaps showing his power even over them, what Herod is doing is he's using them. He's using them to bolster his reputation. He's using them to bolster his own prominence. Herod is addicted to power and glory and fame. And he's using these guys around him to make that idol stand taller for everybody to see. I mean, think about that. You have Herod there, and he, they, people are walking by, and they're like, man, everybody wants to go to Herod's party. That guy must be amazing. There must be something wonderful about Herod. See, Herod uses them to bolster his reputation. Jesus eats with sinners. In fact, it's one of the biggest knocks against Jesus throughout his entire ministry. See, what you have to understand is why this is so important. In Jesus' day, when you ate with people, it said a lot. It wasn't just a sort of fun dinner party. But when you had meals together, they had what we might call a table fellowship. And what that meant was if you were eating in this, in this collection of people, if you were gathered together with these people, you were saying, I stand in solidarity with these people. These are my people. I identify with these people. I am theirs and they are mine. Something like that. So when Jesus sits down with sinners, he's saying, these are my people. I sit in solidarity with them. They are mine and I am theirs. And it's funny because he's walking around claiming to be the son of God, to being holy and righteous and good. And yet he identifies with tax collectors and sinners. The people he calls to be his disciples are not the successful uh, uh, seminary graduates. But he calls sort of rabbi school failures and insurrectionists, literal insurrectionists, to be his disciples. Those that society deems to be righteous and holy, Jesus rebukes them. And those whom society would rather hide away and ignore, Jesus eats with them. And what's so remarkable about all this today is, <laughs> for you and I, uh, he's invited you to dinner today. He's invited you and I to the altar today. 
for a very particular meal to eat his body and drink his blood in the bread and the wine. And he's not doing it because he thinks, that he's th- he thinks that there's something he can get out of you. He's not doing it because you're going to bolster his reputation. No, Jesus only invites sinners to eat, and you're welcome. You're welcome to the table. But see, the reality is if we don't get this, if we don't begin to understand exactly who we are, then we're never going to fully understand just how merciful and gracious and marvelous Jesus is. Jesus doesn't invite us into his kingdom so he can use us for his own ends. He invites us into his kingdom because he loves us. You are the end of what Jesus is looking for. To reconcile you to God, he does everything simply because he loves you. The powers of this world have no time for you unless they can use you for their own ends. Unless you can serve their purposes. Jesus, on the other hand, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life as a ransom for you. But what I want us to notice today, and what I want us to be aware of today, is that this is not just something that takes place sort of in politics, but this idea that we want to use people for our own ends, that we want to use people for our own glory and bolster our own reputations, we are all tempted by this, and we are all really guilty of it. Whether it's in our own family relationships, with our friendships, and our business practices, we are always looking to see how we can leverage somebody for our own ends, how we can use somebody to meet our goals. We're all sort of seeking power over our lives. We want to be in control of everything. And if somebody who comes along uh, takes that control away from us, if somebody or something happens that causes things to spin out of control, uh, we reject that person. We remove them. We walk away from them. Think about how we do this with the Word of God. Think about how we do this with the Bible. The Scriptures are there, and very often the Scriptures will confront things in our lives that we don't like. We don't want them to confront, I should say. They'll expose sins inside of us and sins in our society and sins in our culture that we think are okay, and so we say, well, what should we listen to this the scriptures are the culture. If we listen to the scriptures, we lose power and control. If we listen to the culture, we keep things the way we want them. And so what do we do? We cut that portion of the scriptures off. We chop off its head, if you will. Because we want things our way. We want our power. We all have a little Herod living right inside our heart. And you'd think that. Because we are so prone to act counter to the will of God, because we are so enticed to live differently than the way of Jesus, that Jesus would look at us and say, well, I reject you for it. You're not helping my purposes. You're not helping me achieve my goals. And you'd think Jesus would reject us, but remember what we've been saying all along? Jesus is very different than Herod. He won't let Herod win. So, he's going to continue to come after us. Jesus is going to continue to get after us with his word. He's going to continue to rebuke us in our sins, and he's going to continue to call us to repent because he loves us, and he knows those things are killing us. He is daily going to draw us to repentance and return us to our baptisms, reminding us that we have been crucified with Christ and raised to a new life to live in the kingdom of his mercy forever. Jesus hates the way of this world's power, so he overcomes the world with sacrifice, with forgiveness and with mercy and love. 
So I'm here to tell you today that He is your gracious and merciful Lord. He reigns over you. He doesn't use you for His own selfish ends. You don't have anything He needs anyhow. He's already God. But He's a God who put on your flesh, suffered for your sin, and rose for your salvation. And unlike Him, He lives and He reigns graciously for you. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are a God who is merciful, kind, forgiving, and gracious. Lord, we are surrounded by powers and principalities, by ideas, and even in our own hearts, this desire for power and personal glory. We aspire to things beyond what you have given us, and we are not grateful for the things you have provided. Forgive us for these things, Lord. Teach us to be more like Jesus we suffer for our, uh, as we suffer for the sake of love, as we sacrifice for the sake of others, so that your kingdom might be advanced and others might come to know you. Teach us to love, but in all of this, Lord, remind us that we are constantly forgiven and loved by your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.